Do you ever feel overwhelmed with the evil in the world? I know I do all the time. It's just, it's incredible how much darkness, how many terrible things are out there. I remembered as I was looking through this psalm, uh, a friend of mine who shared about a an Ansel Adams photograph. I don't know if you've ever seen, I'm sure you have seen Ansel Adams photographs. They're, uh, they're black and white, and typically there's just a lot of contrast. And he was showing this photo of a tree, a very famous photo that he shot of a tree, and he was talking about how the beauty that's that's in the shadows and the darkness in the image and how if you were to kind of lighten everything, it would just wash out this image and there'd be no beauty because there's no contrast. And as I was thinking about that, that illustration, it's a great picture of what Psalm 36 is all about. Psalm 36 gives the shadows, the darkness, it shows the depth of man's depravity, including our own depravity, but then it uses that as a way to contrast and to, to accentuate the beauty and the glory and the goodness of God. And so this is a very helpful passage. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're discouraged, this is a great psalm to go to, to be filled up and to be reminded of the goodness and the love of God. In fact, it has some of the, the verses in the psalms that are some of the key verses that you should commit to memory. As you worship God, there you can go back to again and again. For some of you, this will be a familiar psalm because you've heard a song that sings these same words, and so you'll, it'll be easy to memorize. So we're gonna we're gonna see um, this the structure here of this Psalm 36. We see in the first four verses the rampant wickedness of men. Then we see the righteousness and goodness of God, and that's followed up by the response of the faithful. So a pretty simple outline. So let's start off by looking at verses one to four, the rampant wickedness of men. This is what it says in verse one. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Now this first line of the psalm is an interesting one. So the way that that ESV translates it, which I just read, it, it sort of renders it to indicate that a sin is a that sin is a problem that is rooted deep in the heart of the wicked. So transgression is speaking to this person. So sin is speaking to them. It's deep within them. And so, of course, it's going to direct the course of their life. But I tend to view it as maybe the second possibility, which has been pointed out by a, a lot of commentators. Many people observe this. But a literal way to render that first line is, an oracle of transgression. That's, that's kind of weird and awkward language for us. What does that mean? An oracle would be a prophecy. So it's speaking almost as if sin is a prophet, and it's saying, and then when it says deep in his heart, it could actually be within my heart. So there's two ways to render this. So it could be saying, what David could be saying is essentially sin and wickedness, it teaches him as he observes others and he sees how sin works, it's teaching him within his heart and showing him the the foolishness of others. So he's getting wisdom and instruction in the folly of the wicked. And and either way, it's you know it's true, right? If it's speaking of how sin controls and manipulates the hearts of men, of course that's true. If it's saying that we can learn from wickedness and be instructed by observing accurately based on God's word what wickedness is and what it leads to, that's true as well. So both of them are true, but what is the root of wickedness according to this passage? Well, it's there's no fear of God. So remember, Psalms is a wisdom book. So just like Proverbs, it's a wisdom book. It has a very different emphasis, of course, than Proverbs, as it's much more about praising God, and obviously it's these songs to God. 
but it has some of the same lessons present within it, right? And woven throughout, which is the importance of the fear of God. Key passage in Proverbs is that there's, right, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1 7. And so here, if you want to know what wickedness is at its root, it is that there's no fear of God. Now, what's interesting is that this word for fear is not the common word for fear that's used throughout the Old Testament. It's a more rare term that actually speaks to uh, trembling or terror or abject fear. It's a very strong word. So for someone who's wicked, it would be appropriate for them to have an abject terror of God because God is going to destroy them. God's opposed to the purposes of their lives. And so they should be in fear in the most stark and vivid sense, and yet they're not. They don't understand who they are. They don't appreciate the position that they're in, which is that they are under the hand of God's judgment, and it will come upon them sooner or later. So they don't have an accurate perspective. And he goes on to talk more about this, how this inaccurate perspective of God shapes their view of themselves in verse 2. It says, For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Since the wicked person can't see God accurately, he also has an inaccurate view of himself. He doesn't see who he is. And again, here the translation is, is sort of difficult. It's a very strange um, phrase here. That last phrase of the verse is literally translated concerning finding out his iniquity to hate it. So it, that's really an awkward way of saying it, but it, it may actually be the opposite of what the ESV translates it to. So it says his iniquity cannot be found out. You could translate it that his iniquity can be found out and hated. So again, I think either way you translate it, you actually end up with a very similar meaning. So the flattering of himself is obviously him saying, I'm better than I am. He has too high of a view of himself, the wicked person does. And if you take it as the ESV says, then what what it's saying is he flatters himself and thinks that he's indestructible and that no one will ever know what his sin is. But if you take it the way that I think it probably should be translated, it actually is saying that the person flatters himself and this foolishness of flattering themselves and thinking they're indestructible actually is what leads to their sin being discovered. So actually both both ways of translating kind of, I think, point to the same end result, which is this foolish flattering of yourself is going to put you in a position where you will unravel your own life, where you will be destroyed. You know, the wicked can sometimes be so brazen that it makes certain that what they are doing will be found out. We've had so many different politicians or political actors do things, and you wonder, as you see it being revealed, you wonder, how did this person not think that what they were saying or doing would be found out? In fact, you've, I've seen you know many examples in recent years of people sending emails or text messages on their government accounts without apparently any fear that they were going to be dis- discovered when someone files a, you know, a request for that information, which, is, which can be given to the public, right? Or in some cases, people film themselves doing horrible activities that, that then leads to them being prosecuted. So the arrogance and deception is so strong that some people, they act in a way, they flatter themselves as if they're not going to be found out. And that's exactly what leads to their downfall. He says in verse 3, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. So here he has, he speaks of words and then actions. And these two are paired 
they've been paired so many times in the Psalms. If you've been paying attention to that, that's been a theme, right? That words and actions are so often spoken of together because what you do in one area affects the other area. The wicked increasingly um, have an inability to do good as well. This points to the enslaving power of sin. So as their, their words are warped, they then are ceasing to do any good or to act wisely. And it goes even farther into the, the bondage of sin in verse 4. It says, He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. So the words and actions of the wicked are consumed with sin. And here we see that even their times of rest are consumed with sin. That even their time when they should be relaxing, they're being kept awake by a desire to do evil. Think, think in your own life, when you, when you lay down to go to bed, what is it that can keep you awake? Or what is it that wakes you up early in the morning? Are, you, are your thoughts in the wrong place? Are you struggling with anger or bitterness or impure thoughts? What is it that keeps you awake at night? For, for this is an example of that, right? For, for this person, this metaphorical person or this hypothetical person, it's that he wants to do evil. He wants to, to do so. He should be resting, but instead he's obsessed and plotting about some new way to do evil. It reminds me of the words of Proverbs 4.16. Speaking of, again, the wicked as a category, it says, for they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. So before they can rest peacefully, they have to harm someone, destroy someone, indulge themselves in some way, do something sinful in order to rest. It's a terrible, terrible picture. So the picture is of someone whose their entire being and their entire will and desires are given over to sin. And there's this deliberate choice here as well. It says he sets himself in a way that is not good. So there's an act of the will and he's persistent in this made me think of the words of Isaiah 5.18, which says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. The idea here is, the picture is, again, a very vivid one. It's of somebody dragging their sin around with them, holding onto it and pulling it as this horrible burden, right? But, but bringing it along, carrying it with them, dragging it everywhere they go. There's effort, there's commitment to this. And this is the picture of the wicked as someone who's self-destructive and who is persistent in that path. You know, it's easy for us as we read this to think um, that these are just extreme examples of evil, that this doesn't apply to us, that we, you know, even if you're a person who doesn't know Jesus, you might say, well, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not really that bad. But the Bible applies this to all of us in our natural state. So this verse is quoted, Psalm, Psalm 36 is quoted in Romans chapter 3, a very famous passage. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read the start and then the end. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then in verse 18, he says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. So that's obviously Psalm 36, verse 1. And, and when Paul writes this in Romans, he's, he's clearly pointing to the, the reality of evil in every human heart. It's a comprehensive statement about how all of us have fallen into sin and the bondage of sin. So this description that we see in Psalm 36 
is not just of some extreme wicked person out there. It's of all of us apart from Jesus. All of us will end up like this wicked person. This is the human condition. So we see the the wicked person focusing on himself and on controlling his circumstances, but the righteous person focuses outward on God and his character. And that's where the psalm turns. There's a very abrupt turn at verse 5. So Psalm 36, verses 5 to 9, tell us about the righteousness and goodness of God. The righteousness and goodness of God. So we've seen the shadows, right? We've seen the, the wickedness of humanity, and now we can turn and we can see the light in all its contrasting beauty and splendor. And we can see the, the, the righteousness and goodness of God. Um, we're not made to focus constantly on wickedness. We're meant to see who God is and to make that the center of our lives. So he shows us where we should focus in verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. So he speaks of the steadfast love of God. That's that word chesed that we've talked about so many times. It's such a key word, right? It's God's covenant faithfulness, his loyal love to his people. It's not just love in the, maybe in the shallow sense that we could speak of it in our language, but it's a depth of love. It's a, it's a commitment to follow through on what he has promised to his people. And so it speaks of the heart and the will. So it's a very powerful word. Now, what's the extent of that steadfast love? What are the limits? What are the boundaries of it? Well, he says here, it's to the heavens. God's steadfast love extends to the heavens. It's higher than we can reach. It's, it's higher than we can even comprehend. We, we can't measure the distance to the heavens, right? Um, there's, what he's saying here is that it extends to the entire universe. There's nowhere you can go where you're going to be apart from God's steadfast love. That's incredibly comforting. And paired with steadfast love is faithfulness. Faithfulness, that word indicates that God is dependable, that he is steady, he's stable and sure. God's not going to change. He does what he says he will do. He is faithful. And so in the same way that God's steadfast love extends to the heaven, his faithfulness extends to the clouds. Right? He's meant to just be parallel, to be saying the same thing, which is they're vast, they're limitless. You can't put a boundary on them. So what he's saying is we can't measure or put limits on how far God will go to fulfill his promises to his people. Praise God for that. It's incredible. Verse 6, he says, Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. So his righteousness is spoken of here, which means God always does what is right and perfect. And his righteousness is like a mountain. It's immovable, unshakable. It's established forever. So when you look at a, a vast mountain, you can see a depiction of what God's righteousness is like. He never stops being righteous. His judgments are like the great deep. This speaks of the ocean, of the sea, of the deepest parts, the, the unfathomable parts, the unsearchable parts of the ocean. And so just like the sea is unsearchable, so God's love cannot be fully understood. There's always something new to understand and to explore. You know, as I was reading this, I thought about how here in Santa Cruz, where, where we're filming from, where our church is, um, you can look at a mountain and you can look at the ocean and you can behold these wonders of God's creation and in them you can see something about who God is. And so God wants us, 
by looking at nature around us to understand something more about his character, about his nature. So this is a beautiful picture here. And then he, he ends by saying, man and beast, you save, O Lord. So God also brings salvation. He's not simply focused on who God is, but also on what God does. What are his actions? And God loves to save his people from disaster. He is the savior of the entire world. He even cares about the animals. Right? He's not saying here that, that beasts have an eternal soul that God is saving through Jesus' sacrifice. The idea of save here is a very general sense, right? It's that God saves us from disaster, that he guards us and provides for us when we most desperately need it. And that's true of all of his creation. Verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take shadow in the refuge of your wings. So he says, how precious is your steadfast love. That word precious means that his love is priceless. So he moves from a a grand scale of all of nature, looking at God in, in terms of this, um, the, the big things in this world, he, he goes from that to the intimate and the personal, that God's love is priceless, it's precious. It's something that we, will, we want to obtain, we should want to obtain, no matter what the cost is, because it's something that surpasses all worth. God's love is worth pursuing, even if it costs you everything else. So, so he, he says, how precious is your love? And then he says, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Here he's speaking of God's protection. The shadow of your wings is the idea of a, a mother hen or a bird putting their wings over their young in order to protect them. And so we can find shelter and refuge always in God. We can go to him for the protection that we need to preserve us in times of danger. Verse 8, he says, They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So the feast, feasting here in verse 8 could also refer to drinking. So that the, the picture of flowing rivers, of fountains, of this satisfying water is present in verses 8 and 9 very clearly. So it's the, the major theme. So we can feast or, or maybe drink, from the abundance of your house, that word house, that's also been a theme in the Psalms, especially in the Psalms from 23 to 30, roughly, um, right? We saw that repeated theme of the house of God, the house of God. So we've seen a lot of house language. It could be referring to God's temple, or it could just be a picture of all of creation, which of course is ultimately going to be God's temple. But the, the picture here is of God inviting us into his presence of fellowship with him. To be able to feast or to drink from the abundance of God's house is to be close to him. And he says, you give them drink from the river of your delights. That word for delights there is the word Eden. It's Eden. It's the river of your Eden is what he's saying. And what was Eden like? Well, Eden was the garden at the beginning. It was a place of abundance. It was a place of flowing rivers and, and uh, you know, plentiful fruit. But most of all, it was a place of communion with God. That's what it was fundamentally. And the reason it was full of all these good things is because it was a place where God's presence dwelt. So it came with all those good things. So I love the, I love the language in verse 8, right? Feasting and drinking from the river of delights. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And it reminds me a lot of Psalm 34, 8, right? Where I said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So there's incredible delight and joy in knowing God 
and communing with him and trusting in him. He says, for with you is the fountain of life. I love that language as well. The picture is that God has access to all life. He is the source of life itself. So he holds, in a sense, this fountain that life comes from. He, in a sense, really is that fountain of life. And of course, that includes eternal life. And this is why you can't have happiness or life or joy apart from God, ultimately. This is why, in a very basic sense, this is why we share the good news and we point people to Jesus. It's not just because it's the right thing to do. It's because there's no happiness. There's no life apart from God. So if someone lives their whole life rejecting God, then eventually they will get what they've asked for. And they will enter into a reality where they've rejected that fountain of life, all the good gifts that he gives. And all that's left is what we call hell, a place of destruction and torment and misery forever. So happiness and life, they're inherent to who God is. And you can't have those in the long term apart from God. Like this brought to mind uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, a very, very famous passage that shows the opposite of this. Jeremiah 2.12 says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So if you want to know what idolatry is, it's that, right? It's that you have a fountain of life. You have a river of delights that you can drink from. And instead of going to him and enjoying him, you dig a pit in the ground to try to capture some rainwater, even though it's not effective in doing it. You'd rather, you'd rather try to drink from the mud or from the dirt than go to the flowing fountain of water. And that's what we do when we engage in sin, is we go back to these broken cisterns that can't hold any water. They don't satisfy. They don't give us what we need. And so throughout the scripture, the, the authors are calling us to come and find satisfaction in life in God in the New Testament, in Jesus Christ. He says, in your light do we see light. I love this. So God is the source of light himself. And when he says your light, I think he's speaking of the glory of God's countenance, his radiance. This is what brings enlightenment revelation, is to see God in his, in his true nature, that he enlightens us. He brings light to the rest of life. So when you see God and you know God, you can really begin to understand everything else as well. And then we see the final section, verses 10 to 12, the response of the faithful. The response of the faithful. So in light of all this, how should we respond? As we see wickedness on full display, and then we turn our focus to see the beauty and the glory of God's love and faithfulness, how should we live as a result? Well, that's what the end of the passage tells us. Verse 10, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of wicked drive me away. He prays for God to continue to give him love. Continue to give me your love is the idea here. And he prays for, to, to be guarded against evil. He doesn't want the foot of arrogance to come upon him. What he's saying, speaking of there is the, the arrogant overpowering him, right? Having the upper hand on him. Don't let the wicked overcome me or drive me away from relationship and communion with you. What the wicked will try to do is they'll try to drive the righteous away from the fountain of life so that they won't, they won't be able to commune with God. And really, that's the only way the wicked can truly destroy God's people 
to turn them away from life itself and towards that which destroys and brings death, and that's sin. And so whatever the wicked can do to us outwardly, if they can't turn us away from trusting and hoping in God, they won't prevail ultimately. Verse 12, he says, There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So he ends by seeing the final end of the wicked, that they will not prevail over the righteous. And this is why we can simply keep our eyes fixed on God, right? Because it's not our effort that saves us. It's God's work on our behalf. So we can rest and we can trust in him, knowing that God is going to take care of it. He's going to take care of those that oppose us. We have to simply look to him. So if you're feeling overwhelmed by the world, meditate for a while on this psalm. Think about the beautiful words here. I love how it's it's so honest about the human condition, right? It doesn't mince any words. It says, says truthfully and honestly who we are apart from God and the evil that rests in our hearts and controls us, but it doesn't leave us there. It doesn't simply focus on the evil of the world. It turns us to something greater. It points us to something that is far surpassing the strength of the wicked, and that is the boundless, measureless, unfathomable love of God. So put your eyes on him and be delivered.